This is the Darcy Jarrell Podcast, Episode 1. Today, my guest is Jacques Boudreau, leader of the Libertarian Party of Canada. We'll be talking about unfunded liabilities such as the CPP and Medicare. Okay, Jacques, welcome to the show. Uh, with any luck, this will be released as the very first episode of a yet unnamed podcast. Uh, given my creative prowess, it might end up just being called the Darcy Giroux Podcast. That's about the it's about the most creative thing I could come up with so far. Um, so, Jacques, how you been? Very well, and you? Been good, thanks. Well, first of all. Um, how's things been since you've become the leader of the Libertarian Party of Canada? Uh, it's been pretty slow, I would say, uh, large part due to my own uh, uh, fault as I have some, uh, it's all good, but very, very busy on the family front. So it's taking a lot of my energy, uh, but I continue to be you know, active on Twitter I continue to have the the uh, odd conversation with people who reach out to us or uh, would be volunteers, and of course we have um, occasional board meetings to try to advance things. So it's certainly not moving as fast as I would like, but I'm taking most of the blame uh, at this point. But things will improve. Yeah. Well, you know, I think especially after the last election, too, a lot of people are. You know, I don't want, you know, disaffected with uh, federal politics in a lot of ways and um, and maybe take it a breather. Uh, but also, you are running in the Ontario uh, provincial election. Uh, maybe say a quick word about that also. Right. So in Ontario, we're going to the polls on June the 2nd. Um, unlike Trudeau, at least this time, they stuck to, because we have now fixed... Uh, fixed date election. So everybody knew that this was coming, that this was going to happen. So the last week or so I've been busy gathering signatures so that I could run. That's all in. I am officially now a candidate. It's going to be a, a different experience because I just noticed that um, in the past, as a libertarian, I would be going up against not only the, the usual parties, but a party called the Freedom Party. And the Freedom Party, if I understand the history correctly, is a party that was formed uh, by people who broke away from the Ontario Libertarian Party for reasons that I'm not fully aware. But that was always a bit of a, a disappointment because the Libertarian movement is relatively small to start with. And if you start breaking off into different components, it's, it's not helpful. And I would say they would take maybe 250 votes away from me when I compare my uh, sort of my track record at the federal level compared to provincials. However, so they don't seem to be running, at least not in London West, but they've been replaced now by two new entities that have come to the fore. And I believe both of them are small parties that are broken off from the conservatives. One is the new blue party and the other one is the Ontario party. So I don't know what that's going to do. I, I don't think that they are um, 
libertarian parties per se, but uh, no, unfortunately it might eat away into my um, my supporters. We, we shall see. But it'll make for an interesting dynamic again. Oh, okay. Well, I'd, I actually have heard, I have heard the name of the Freedom Party in Ontario and the Ontario Party. Uh, don't know much about either of them. Uh, what about the uh, Ontario Party platform has you most excited? Do you mean the Ontario, Ontario Libertarian Party? Yeah. The, the, oh, sorry. Yes, the Ontario. So I'll try this one more time. Uh, what about the Ontario Libertarian Party platform has you most excited? Well, to me, it's the the general direction, right? It's it's trying to reduce the size of the government and uh, like under our our leader, it's more of a The, the direction is more about giving people freedom in terms of the way their money is used. Um, so, you know, on education, for example, it's allowing, you know, like it's it's sort of the uh, follow the money, uh, sorry, the money follow the decisions uh, of the parents, for example, right? So it's not, you know, sort of dismantling uh, the current system, but it's more, well, if you want to, you send your children to, um, some kind of private school, the money would follow you. So it's, it's giving people a lot more, um, well, freedom about how their tax money is being used. And, it, you know, of course, a general reduction in the size of the government. And I, you know, I, the, the ex-leader of the Libertarian Party of Canada, Tim Mowen, was very fond of saying that anybody who advocates for a smaller government tomorrow compared to today is... Uh, is an ally or a friend of mine, and I, I certainly concur. I mean, it may not be an ideal setting, but, you know, if it reduces the government, uh, I'm all for it. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Well, so let's talk about the, uh, uh, on the federal level, and the subject that is, you know, primary in, in uh, your wheelhouse, which would be the unfunded liabilities. So, I mean, first of all, maybe just give a brief overview of what we mean when we're talking about unfunded liabilities at the federal level, and uh, then we'll get into some deeper, some deeper thoughts on them. Right. So before I go on, I should specify for the listeners that I am an actuary by trade, and actuaries, you know, do a lot of different things. But one of the uh, certainly one of the things I did for more than thirty-five years was to ensure that my employer had set enough money aside in order to pay for promises made to policyholders, right? In other words, making sure that the proper funding was set. Now, let's first de de uh, define what the liability is. Now, there's a one form of liability that most people will be aware of, and that is when you borrow money, well, you have a liability because there's an expectation that you're going to have to pay it back. Okay, so that's that's a financial liability that most people are aware of. But the other uh, form of liability, and this is the one that we're going to talk about, is a promise of service. Now, I shouldn't say actually that we're going to talk about only about that one, because we're going to talk about the former one as well. We're going to talk about both of them. But a liability is when you promise somebody to do something. 
Now, let's take Medicare or the healthcare system, right? Governments have basically told us, if you get sick, we'll be there, right? We're going to take care of you. Now, that becomes a liability because you've told people that you're going to perform a service for them. Okay, so now that we've defined what the liability is, what is an unfunded liability? Well, there, I think giving people examples would, would be best. So the, the funding of a liability can be done in a few ways. So think of your mortgage. You've borrowed a large amount of money from the bank, so you now have a liability because you owe them. Now, how does the bank satisfy itself that you're going to be able to fund, like to pay this liability? Well, that's why they do a credit check, they look at your income, right? And they determine that a certain percentage of your income will go to pay for your mortgage, right? So you're now funding the, the promise to pay through an income. So that, that would be a case where your liability will be fully funded by looking at the future earning power that you have. Okay. Now, let's assume that you lose your job and you have no source of income. Well, you still have a liability, but now you have no source, no means to pay it. Now, it gets a little bit more complicated here because, of course, your house is... Um, a um, like the, the, the your your loan is secured against your house, right? So the bank could indeed foreclose and then take your house and sell it and pay themselves. That would be also an element of the funding of this liability. Now, what has happened, uh, and I'll take Medicare as an example again, is that um, I think everyone knows that the probability of someone getting uh, of dying increases every year that we get older. So if you're a 40 year old, your chances of dying in the coming year is greater than it was as a 39 year old, but it's less than there's a 41 year old. So it, it you know tends to slope up like this. And when you get to your 70s, it, it ramps up quite a bit. Well, it turns out that healthcare costs follows the same pattern. Healthcare is very, very limited in terms of how much it costs people. If you think of See, quinquennial ages, like groups of five, right? The first five years of life and then five to, to nine and then 10 to 14 and so forth. It's very, very level. And then when you get to your sort of late 50s, 60s, it starts ramping up and then it really explodes. Now, why is this relevant? Well, it's relevant because there's a percentage of the taxes that we pay every year that go to pay for this health care. But when you have a very young population, which we did in the 1960s and 70s, there was not a lot of healthcare costs. And but what happened is that instead of say taking these these healthcare tax revenues, and at that point we had an excess, right? I mean, we were the government was getting a lot more taxes to pay for healthcare than they had to pay. Well, that excess should have been put aside because at some point that reverses. Like you get to an age in the population where there's so many old people 
that the amount that you have to pay for healthcare far exceeds the amount of revenue that are allocated to pay for healthcare. Now, if if early on when we had an excess, that money had been put aside and then it gets invested and all that, then when it reverses and now you have more cost than revenue, you can go and dip from this reserve. But the, all that money has been, it's been spent, like it's completely gone, right? So the, the unfunded liability is the shortfall. Like it, it basically, when, when I quote a number, and I quote one, because healthcare among all the provinces, the unfunded liability is about uh, $0.9 trillion or $900 billion. That is the amount of money that over the years should have been set aside to pay for the oncoming tsunami of healthcare costs. But as I said, the money's been spent on something else. So we have, so, so this, this describes in a nutshell what an unfunded liability. It's the, the lack of having set aside monies at a time where you were getting more money in than money out. It's, it's, it's a simple, I mean, it's a simplification, but it conceptually, that's the way it works. So we have $900 billion of unfunded liability for healthcare. We have $900 billion of unfunded liability for CPP. We have half a trillion dollars of unfunded liability for old age security. And then you add to this another about 300 billion for GIS and um, another 300 billion, I think, for government pension plans for their employees, it adds up in total to $2.7 trillion, which dwarfs the debt. So when you hear, for example, the liberals go on and on and on about how the debt is manageable, notice that they never talk about the unfunded liabilities. And that's why we have an issue, because maybe if it were just on its own, the debt could be managed, but you add to that the unfunded liabilities and as a colleague of mine has said, the 2030s and 40s are going to be very ugly. Mm-hmm. Healthcare is obviously one that I think a lot of people don't view as an unfunded liability. They they view it as something that's going to be available to them when they want it, when they need it. Uh, where something like the CPP, uh, since its inception, that's the Canadian Pension Plan, since the very beginning, I think people knew that this was a system where people were paying money into it that wasn't going to be there uh, when they retired. They would be relying on uh, what the next generation was paying into it at that time. In financial sector, they call it a Ponzi scheme. Um, if you, what what are your thoughts on that? I mean, this so it's in. And I guess it's two questions. One, the idea of it being a Ponzi scheme, and two, uh, the difference of uh, the CPP as an unfunded liability versus uh, Medicare as an unfunded liability. Okay, so all of the, the above, like the ones that I mentioned before, are indeed textbook Ponzi schemes. So, let, Sorry, let me... and, and, and do you include Medicare when you say that? Oh, yes, very okay. much so. Yeah. yeah. Now, again, maybe for the benefit of the, the viewers or listeners, um, let me give the example of a guy who went to jail for running a Ponzi scheme 
guy by the name of Bernie Madoff, who actually, I think, died fairly recently. So this is a, a man who passed himself off as a, ma a money manager. And the way he would work it is that he would get money from people. And then he would pay them a an excellent return, right? And of course, he passed it off as if he was a, a great investor. But when in fact, what he was doing, he was that he was selling um, or, or getting money from new subscribers, using that money to pay the first subscribers. In fact, incidentally, I mean, it's interesting that Bernie Madoff was caught through forensic accounting because somebody was looking at the, the results year in and year out. And he noticed that they were extraordinarily consistent because anybody who's invested in the marketplace knows that you know, overall, you might do quite well, but it doesn't mean that every single year is going to be stellar. Sometimes you're going to have losses. But this guy, you know, was very steady. I, I forget exactly, but it was in the 10 to 15% range year after year, very consistent. And it was like, well, you know, the real world doesn't work this way. And, you know, that's how the investigation started. But anyway, the point is, the 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 first subscribers were getting paid by the, the, the second sort of generation of subscribers who then got paid by the third generation of subscribers and so forth. And the thing is, of course, this is unsustainable because at some point you're going to run out of new subscribers. Medicare, CPP, OAS, GIS, all of those were predicated on what's called an open group as opposed to a closed group. Now, the, to me, this is just kind of um, what Hayek has called Weasel words, right? Open group doesn't sound bad, but it's basically a different word for a Ponzi scheme because an open group means, yes, we're going to pay you benefits today that are going to be paid by the young people. And when the young people get old, their benefits are going to be paid by the people who come after them. The problem is when you do that, you are completely at the mercy of all kinds of assumptions. And I will give you an example. I mean, this is verifiable people can go and see this in the early 1990s the conservative government under brian Mulroney, they recognized that we had a massive problem regarding the cpp and the problem was that the three or four of the main assumptions that people had predicated or, or calculated the contribution to cpp were going to be completely off right there, there was um, how many children people were going to have, the growth in the uh, in wages, the longevity of people. Those are the three that I can think of right now. And of course, people ended up having far fewer children than expected. They lived way longer than expected. And wage growth wasn't nearly as good as people expected. So in the early 1990s, they, looking at this, they recognized that if nothing got done, then eventually the contribution to the CPP from people who, again, were not getting benefits would have to go through a certain level. I forget what the exact number was, but it was so high that the government was convinced that people would revolt, right? They would be saying, hey, I can't, whatever the number was, maybe like 20% of my pay goes to pay my CPP. I, I, I can't do this. So they had to make a number of modifications in order to try to make this more palatable, which they succeeded in doing. But I'm bringing this up 
to explain that this open group concept is, first of all, I, I think from a moral perspective, the idea that your own benefits, you don't pay for yourself. I mean, you know, in daily life, most people save for their own retirement. Like they don't expect, it, it would be like me saying, well, my retirement is going to be funded by my kids, right? I'm not going to save any money. And then when my kids are old, uh, sorry, when they work and I retire, well, I'm going to ask them to cut me a check on a regular basis. And then the, the kids saying, well, if I do that, I won't be able to save for my retirement, but I'm going to expect my children to do that. I mean, I, I, I don't think morally it's defendable to ask somebody else to pay for your own retirement. And that's what the government has done with the CPP. So, yes, from that point of view, the CPP is clearly a Ponzi scheme. But then so is Medicare. I mean, the Medicare should have been funded on a cohort basis, right? And by cohort, I mean people of the same generation, again, should have made, and, and I know I don't blame them here because it's the governments, but um, contribution, like a, a certain percentage of the taxes page, again, as I said before, should have been set aside in order to pay, you know, for the Medicare when they got, you know, old enough to, to require it. But it goes like it's beyond that. Like it's the same thing with OAS. I mean, there's no funding whatsoever for OAS. OA, this is old age security is entirely. Um, that is what's referred to as a pay go system, right? You pay as you go, right? You you look at general taxes collected and you pay OAS out of that. But when you have an aging population like we do, the whole thing you know falls apart. Right. Yeah. So. When when you talk about the changes that were made in the early '90s and uh, that they've succeeded, uh, first of all, what were those changes? And I expect you, what you mean is that they have succeeded up until up until now, but they are basically they've put a they've put a uh, it's a temporary fix on this thing. Like it's this the whatever they did then isn't going to last. Right. So the fixes were, um, they were three or threefold, I think. So let, let me see if I can remember them. Number one, they did increase the, the contribution rate for the purpose of, for once, trying to fund in part future benefits. Now, the CPP is expected to be 30% funded as opposed to zero. So that's an improvement in about 10 to 15 years. Like currently, it's about 20% funded. And what happens now is that between this pot of money that's been set aside to pay again for these future shortfall and the future expected contribution from people, we, we now have a system that they refer to as steady state. That is the contribution to CPP on the part of the employee and the employer is now expected to remain level for decades to come. So, so pre-funding part of it was part of the solution. Another element is for years, the government was making all of this CPP uh, money available to the provinces to um, engage in the, the wildest schemes uh, such that 
the money that should have been invested in the marketplace and return decent, you know, yields were, were as, as happens most of the time from, you know, from government, completely squandered. I mean, the returns were, were terrible. And they said, enough of this. They created the uh, CPP Investment Board, I think it's called. And its target is no longer to make cheap loans available to the provinces, but simply to return, uh, you know, within certain risk parameters, the, the best return possible for uh, for Canadians who contribute to the CPP. So we have better investment earnings. We've pre-funded part of it. Oh, and, and the last one, and this is the type of thing that is, well, no, sorry, there's two more. One is rather sneaky. Most Canadians are probably not aware that at the time they ramped up the amount of immigration to this country. And you may or may not be aware that we work on a point system where points are given to an applicant. And, you know, the more points you get, the more likely you are to be granted uh, to come to Canada. Well, one of the big drivers is youth, right? I mean, again, to, to continue to fund this Ponzi scheme, we would try to, to bring in as many young people as possible so that we can get them to work and then pay for the benefit of older people. Uh, but that's, if people wonder why immigration level went up a lot, that's one of the reasons. And there's no abating for this. It's going to continue. And then they made some changes that were basically decreasing some of the the disability and and um, death benefits, I believe. This was very, very technical in nature, not on anyone's radar, but it saved them quite a bit of money, but kind of done in a way that was not going to, you know, get people upset because it was too technical. So that's, that's some of the things they, they did. And, and as I said, it worked in the sense that According to the late, latest actuarial projections, the contribution rate are indeed expected to remain level. However, I'm not sure that this is done in the context of understanding the unfunded liabilities that we have elsewhere. Because, again, going back to Medicare, the pressures are going to be so enormous and we hear this from the provinces on a regular basis. You got to increase your transfer payment to the provinces. Well, you know, like the same dollar cannot be asked to carry the CPP, the OAS, the GIS, and Medicare, right? I mean, if, if you're going to have four dollars of demand, you better have four dollars. You, you cannot again ask, like it's an exaggeration because it's not one to four. But if there aren't enough dollars to pay for all these promises something has got to give where it's going to give i i don't know because priorities are going to have to be made right do, do we want to make sure that uh, medicare is fully funded by the way i should point out i don't know what it's like in alberta but in, in ontario and again they do this covertly right they don't come out and make these announcements but what happens is that every year or so there's a few more services that are delisted and delisting means that they were prior in prior years they were covered. Like if, if you whatever the service was, if if you needed it, it was covered. And suddenly now you're you're expected to pay for it. So will they continue to delist more and more frequently? 
I mean, who knows? But these are the types of pressures that they are under, and nobody seems to care. That, that's the part that completely baffles me. I mean, every time I run, I bring this up, and you would think that it would sound the alarm. Nobody cares. I mean, it's, it's a typical example of kicking the can down the road, except, you know, we're running out of road here. Oh, for sure. And I, I here's, it's a politically unpopular thing to bring up because politicians are generally wanting to, uh, you know, make promises and give things away. Uh, this really sounds more of a conversation about uh, taking something away or explaining to people that we're in a mess and uh, there's going to be some hard, hard times and some hard choices that have to be made about it. Well, you know, whenever you, you're going to a lot of debt, which we are doing, whenever you have unfunded liabilities, that should be the first clue that you're living beyond your means. You know, I stated before about money that was not set aside. Well, the money was spent on something else. And my point would be, well, you know, whatever that money was spent on something else, it shouldn't have been spent. Right. You should recognize that the proper thing to do is to fund this appropriately. And we're going to set the money aside and we're not going to touch it until the reason for which it's been set aside right now requires the funds. In this case, say Medicare. You know, it's a, it's a bit like, again, I, I'm not quite sure what it is, it is in Alberta, but it, in Ontario, we have sales tax on gasoline, which are supposed to go for the maintenance of roads and highways and whatever. Except if you look it up, you will not find a, a segregated fund for highways or, or roads. It, it's just, it's a big slush fund. It, it just goes into general revenues and good luck trying to find out where that money went because... I suspect most of the time it's not spent at all on roads and right, but it should be. I mean, if the, if you're going to do it that way, then let's do it properly. Yeah, no, I I do agree with you 100 percent on that. Um, so as a uh, not only as the you know the leader of the Libertarian Party of Canada, but a, as an actuary and a guy who's well versed in this stuff, what is our solution? Like what what? What do we do to get out of this mess? Well, <laughs> you said uh, just a moment ago that there, you know, hard decisions have to be made and there, um, bad news have to be communicated. So let me emphasize again, the money that should have been set aside wasn't, and it's already spent. Okay. So there's no undoing this. So there's not going to be, I, I, you know, I'm not going to come in Trudeau-like with a magic wand to, to claim that I can make it go away. I think, and, and this is not, um, well, first of all, you know, like if I'm speaking as leader of the Ontario, uh, sorry, of the uh, Libertarian Party of Canada, I, the first thing I want to acknowledge is that I would actually respect the, the Constitution, which means that healthcare is a provincial jurisdiction. It's not a federal one. And I, I get really upset when I see all kinds of federal parties treated as if the Constitution doesn't exist. Now, we do have a problem in this country in terms of the taxing powers. I think the federal government's got far too much, given that its responsibilities, for the most part, are less than what the provinces have to carry. But that's a different story. But in general terms, I would, um, I would point to, and this is not... You know, definite in my mind, because while I've studied it a little bit, I need to study it more. But 
I would point to the Netherlands. The Netherlands, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago, they went completely private. The one thing before you know people uh, get really upset, the one thing they do is, no, by private it means that you have to go and get health insurance, right? So there's a premium to pay. And then for the rest, you know, it, it's the market with competition between insurers and, and providers. The one thing they do, though, is that if you're too poor or, you know, if you can't afford your premiums, then there is a subsidy where the government comes in and helps you. Now, that to me seems a way, way better way of doing things than the way we do this. Because again, this would be, except for the subsidy to people who cannot pay their premium, would go a long ways in the sense that now you would have competition, you would have the, the free market at work, you, you would no longer have this uh, criminalization that we have under the Canada Health Act of two parties wanting to transact into some kind of medical uh, procedure. I mean, right now, I, I don't know if people fully understand that a physician who wants to provide a private service, that is, look, I'm, I'm going to operate on you or I'm going to do this or whatever in, re in return for you paying me directly, is a criminal act, which is, again, as a libertarian, I, I simply cannot wrap my head around how people morally justify preventing two willing participants from engaging in a um, in a market transaction where there's no coercion, right? Um, but I mean, I, I mean, a, a libertarian government would completely eliminate the Canada Health Act and these five uh, conditions. That's that's the first thing to to allow provinces, if they so wish, to experiment with maybe a hybrid between public and private. Um, but I, I would certainly look at the Dutch model because. I've seen the, the result of the comparison and on most metrics, not all, but on most metrics, they outperform uh, the Canadian model and sometimes quite significantly. So it seems, okay, everybody's covered, which is what, you know, it's a big bugbear for the, the left, uh, you know, about um, universality. Well, everybody's covered, everybody's got insurance, um, you, and then you got better outcomes. What's not to like? Now, the, the I don't want to present this as being a um, a solution that doesn't have any downfalls because part of the downfalls would be someone like me. I'm in my early 60s now. I have paid taxes, a lot of them, throughout my life. You would assume that... Um, Again, if it had been done properly, that I would have an account from which to draw whenever, you know, in the future when I get sick, that, that it would be there. And now, under this proposal, it would be, well, you know, you paid all this money. Most of it has already been spent. Uh, you got to pony up again and start buying insurance. So it's, it's, but again, there's no getting around the fact that money that should have been set aside was not. It, it's spent. So, um but going forward, you know, for my kids and my grandkids, it, it would be a better way to go than uh, what we have. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're, uh, that looks like it for time. So I want to thank you, Jacques, for coming on. Um, and 
let's do this, uh, you know, however often. Let's try and do it once a week or something like that. I don't know. Whatever is going to work for us. Sounds great. And it was great uh, being on your show. You can follow Jacques Boudreau on Twitter at Vote Boudreau. The Libertarian Party of Canada is libertarian.ca. And you can subscribe to this podcast, the Darcy Giroux podcast on Substack. <laughs>